Well, amen, and I uh, wanted to tell you about a meteorologist and a mathematician. The guy's name was Edward Lorenz. He discovered something that was very interesting, um, at least to him, and uh, he studied tornadoes. And he attempted to come up with mathematical models that could account for everything that was happening in the immediate lead-up time that contributed to the tornado. And so all of this uh, data he would collect, temperatures and cold fronts and humidity and everything you could imagine. And uh, he would collect all this data, and he called it initial condition data. And the belief was that if we humans could account for everything that was happening at the time of a tornado and the time just prior to that and work backwards, then we would be able to predict whether current conditions might produce a tornado. And so uh, Mr. Lorenz discovered something that uh, he did not expect. In his calculations, as a mathematician, he knew that you should be able to round numbers and come up with the same result. You, you might do this with your checkbook, you know, month to month. Uh, some of you are very precise in your checkbook and you account for every single penny, but some of us know that, you know, if you sort of... Uh, uh, see anything that's 50 cents to 99 cents, you can sort of round it up. And anything less, you can round it down. And at the end of the month, it's all going to pretty much balance. Now, some of y'all are just too OCD for that. You know, you got to account for every last penny. But if you know math, you know that everything sort of works out in the end. So he tried doing this as a scientist, rounding up numbers, not to whole numbers, but to some pretty long fractions or decimals, you know. And, and he discovered that when he would round numbers in his computerized model that it would never produce the result that he found in nature. He had to use the most precise exact numbers to produce the same result. In other words, a very small change in initial conditions created a significantly different outcome. And he gave this phenomenon a title, the butterfly effect. Now, speaking metaphorically, it means, and this is an extreme, that a butterfly that flaps its wings a few uh, weeks ago in a very distant place could actually produce a tornado. Now, none of us really believe that, and neither does Mr. Lorenz, but it signifies, this idea signifies that a very small change in initial conditions can create significantly different outcomes. For example, a real life example. Had my parents not moved us and when I was a teenager from Lubbock, Texas to Bedford, Texas in 1983, the chances are very likely that I would have never, uh, five years later, met the woman, the young woman who would become my wife. Our kids would have never been born. Life would have been very different. But it was just a small change, just moving from one location to another, that created a significantly different outcome. Today I'm asking you to consider the possibility of making a small change that can have a huge and very positive outcome in your life. And here's the change tell you up front. I'm asking you to change the focus of your life from yourself to God. Just a small change. 
just a small change. It's a change of thinking. I'm not asking you to change the world. I'm just asking you today to change your way of thinking from focusing your life on yourself and what you want out of life to possibly focusing on God and what God might want out of your life. Now, we're in the book of James, and we've seen in the book of James that there's two possibilities in life. You can live your life your way, or you can live your life God's way. And James is very blunt. He's very direct. Sometimes he uses pretty strong language. And he says things in pretty much black or white. It's one way or the other. You really need to decide which way you're going to live. And if you're a Christian, here's where you run into trouble. It's when you live part of the time for God and part of the time for yourself. Living in two worlds, you're a subject of two kingdoms. And James says very bluntly that you're a double-minded man. You're wishy-washy. You're trying to live in two different realms. And it's really impossible to do with any success. And so in this passage that we're going to look at today, in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and I invite you to turn with me to that passage. In the book of James, it's right after the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, near the end of your Bible. Book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. James describes what a double-minded Christian looks like. And specifically, he's showing us a double-minded Christian in God's family, in the church. And James shows that when God's people have conflict with one another, because that's where it ends up. When you live a very self-centered life, it ultimately will end up in conflict with other people, causing disruption in the church even. And so when there's disruption, when there's dissension in the church, when God's people have trouble and conflict with one another, it's usually because one or either or both of them actually might be double-minded. And so in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I invite you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I'll read aloud, and you read silently. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, James writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us. Heavenly Father, I pray that You give us understanding and insight into Your words so that our lives could be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And so again, James makes it very clear, if you have conflicts with another Christian, it is probably because there's evil desires in your heart. Verse 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures to wage war in your members? Now I know. I know what you're thinking, that if you have conflict with anyone else, it's their fault, right? I mean, it couldn't be you. It's got to be them. Whoever the them is, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's someone at work, maybe it is someone at the church, maybe it's a child of yours or a parent of yours, but it's, I'm sure, I'm certain, 
I agree with you 100%. It is not your fault. It's their fault, right? So I want to just consider the possibility. Let's just do a little experiment. And, and I would say this, too, that common sense tells us that if it is their fault, if they're the ones who started it, then it's their job to fix it. I mean, you're just innocent. You're sitting there loving God with all your heart, and here comes someone and broadsides you with some wrong statement, something that gets under your skin, and it's completely their fault. Well, let's do this little ex exercise. Let's see what the Bible says. When the conflict is, first of all, we'll look at when it's our fault. What does the Bible say we should do when it's our fault? And then we'll see what the Bible says when it's their fault. And in fact, we're not just going to look and see what the Bible says, but we're going to see specifically what Jesus says, because he's the one who's going to tell us. So first, when it's your fault, those rare occasions that it might actually be your fault. Let's see what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Here's what Jesus says. If you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. It's your fault. Your brother has something against you. You've done something wrong. Leave your offering there, Jesus said, and go before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Simple enough, right? I mean, when it's your fault, when the conflict between you and another person is your fault, Whose responsibility is it to make right? It's yours. Easy enough. Jesus could not be more plain. What if it's their fault? If it's the other person's fault, here's probably what most of us do. Someone hurts you with words or with tone or something like that. And you end up thinking something like this. You may not think it, you just sort of may feel it. Well, that person really hurt me. But I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do anything about it. I'll just be hurt. Maybe if I'm feeling extra spiritual, I'll pray for them. But I, I'm certainly not going to say anything to them about the hurt they caused. Well, let's see what Jesus said about that. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Did you catch that? When conflict in the body of Christ is caused by someone else, when you're completely innocent, it is your responsibility to go to your brother and try to make it right. To tell your brother and sister in Christ that they hurt you. Either way, whether it's your fault or whether it's someone else's fault, if conflict exists, it is your responsibility to do everything you can to make it right. You think that you're being nice by not telling someone what they did wrong but it's not true. That is not a nice thing to do. Just to take it. It is not. You see, you're really being selfish. 
when you refuse to tell your brother or sister in Christ what they did. And I'll explain to you why. First, if you don't correct your brother in Christ, how can the sin within his heart be exposed and dealt with? He may be blind to something that is very correctable in his life. And not only that, but what you're really doing is you're putting your desire to avoid confrontation above the spiritual health of your brother in Christ. Is that a loving thing to do? To allow the spiritual health of your brother in Christ to continue to be poor simply because you don't desire to do what Jesus plainly said to do? But it's actually worse than that. You see, by keeping it to yourself, when you're hurt and you refuse to gently and humbly tell your brother and sister in Christ what they did wrong, by keeping it to yourself, you have all but guaranteed that the sin that was committed against you, the hurt that was caused to you, will continue. And it will be someone else's turn to be hurt by the same person. You see, when the body of Christ has an untreated wound, it tends to spread until all the members of the body feel it. Eventually, it will hurt the whole body. Please understand that conflicts in the body of Christ have root in the evil desires of our hearts. And if you think... Ah, it's just my little sin. It only affects me. No one knows. I'm sorry. It will affect other people. As long as you're part of the body of Christ, it cannot help but affect other people. God's family will eventually be in conflict. Verse 2 describes the evil desires that we fight against in our hearts. It says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. I mean, have you ever been so frustrated that there was something you wanted that you couldn't have that you decided, I'm going to cross this line. I'm just going to take it. Or I'm just going to fight for it. I don't care if I'm like a bull in a china shop. I'm going to tear things up till I get my way. Have you ever made that kind of decision? Truth is, probably most of us have. There is a way that the Bible tells us what to do when we don't get what we want. The Bible gives us instructions on that too. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Easy choice here, but you do have a choice. Which way will you choose? You can be selfish, which leads to envy and strife and hatred, or you can trust God for His provision in your life, which leads, according to Philippians 4, 6, it leads to gratitude. It leads to freedom from anxiety. But here's what most of us do, a whole lot of us at least. We like to play both sides. We want to be selfish 
and spiritual at the same time. We want to be free from anxiety. We want to be grateful as long as we get our way. These things can't be. And so we try to turn ourselves into this spiritual selfish hybrid. And we end up even asking God to bless our selfishness. Please, God, let me win the Mega Millions. My life will be so much better if I could only have a billion dollars that I didn't earn. Please, God. I'm not going to ask for how many of your hands were raised. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you prayed that this week. Verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may, listen to this word, spend it on your pleasures. You know, I find it interesting that when James talks about the prayers of selfish people, he uses the language of monetary exchange. Spend it. Because that's what some people think God is. He's some kind of generous, invisible banker in the sky who allows us to cash in our prayers for money or possessions. That's a heathen approach to God. And I would tell you very clearly, you need to stay away from any preacher or teacher on TV or elsewhere who treats God like some kind of candy dispenser. Just deposit your prayers and withdraw whatever satisfies your greedy soul. That's nonsense. I mean, think about it. Do you really believe that God, who is holy and righteous, wants to feed and enhance the unholy and the unrighteous desire of our selfish hearts? You know that's not true. You know what God's plan for us is. You know what He desires of us. He desires that we become like His Son. That we become in the image of His Son through a process called sanctification. It's being made more holy, more close to Christ. God wants you to be more like Jesus, not less like Jesus. And so if you're asking God for things that will make you less like Jesus, are you really surprised that He doesn't answer your prayers? And if you're not getting your prayers answered, Maybe you should check your motives because maybe you're asking for things for your own sake. And so James says in verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I've told you before, when you read and study God's Word, pay special attention to those words that seem to pop off the page, those words that maybe seem out of place. They seem like they shouldn't be there. Maybe they're extraneous words. And there's a word in verse 4 that is like that. He calls us adulteresses. Now, it shouldn't be any surprise to us by now as we've walked through the book of James that James is calling us a name because James is pretty strong with his language. Okay? But here's what's interesting to me. He doesn't call us adulterers. He uses the feminine form. Adulteresses. Why? There's a reason. There's a reason why. Here's why. In the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New, God's people are described as being the wife or the bride of the Lord. 
Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 and 5. God says, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will not forget the shame of your youth and your approach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And you know the New Testament echoes this. We are the bride of Christ. What does that mean in practical terms? To be the bride of Christ. Here's one thing that it has to mean. It has to mean this. That as his bride, our hearts must be devoted to him and to him alone. We cannot take our hearts and be devoted to false gods. And if we do this, if we call ourselves followers of Christ and yet turn our hearts away from our groom, then we deserve to be called adulteresses. If we become a friend of the world, we are acting like an enemy of Christ. And so, again, the choice is clear. Are you going to be a friend of God or a friend of the world? We need to remember what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. He said, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. James wasn't the only one to use stark language. Verse 5, James says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. This is a difficult verse to interpret. There's a lot of questions in this short verse. First question is, what is the scripture James is referring to? Another question, who's the subject of the verse, the one that gets jealous? Who is that? Who's the he there? And third, what's he talking about, this spirit that dwells within us? Is this the Holy Spirit or is this our human spirit? Well, if we knew what scripture James was referring to, the verse might be a lot easier to interpret. But unfortunately, there's no Old Testament verse that says exactly what James says in this verse. And so we have to investigate for clues and make sure that we ultimately arrive at an interpretation that's consistent with the tenor and theology of the book of James and of the Bible, of course. Here's the way I understand it. God is the subject of the verse. He is the one being talked about. He, God, jealously desires. And then we have this issue of this spirit within us. And the spirit referred to here, in my estimation, is not referring to the Holy Spirit, but it's referring to the spirit that God has given each one of us. Why do I believe that? Well, to be clear, there are many places in the old in, excuse me, in the New Testament that speak of the Holy Spirit residing in Christians. But for the book of James, for James himself, he never refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's just not a subject that he deals with in this book. I think that he's dealing with the spirit that God has created within all of us. Look at these clues a little closer. This idea that God jealously desires our spirit that he created. The Old Testament 
talks about God longing for His creation. Job prayed in Job 14, 15, You will call and I will answer you. You long for the work of your hands. God longs for the work of His hands. The Old Testament talks about God being jealous right there in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not worship them, these false gods, these idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God in visiting the, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. The Old Testament also talks about God putting a spirit within man. Job 32, verse 8. But it is the spirit of man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. And so these clues lead me to understand verse 5 this way, that our human spirit, the spiritual nature of our humanity, has been created by God for a very important purpose, to be directed toward Him, to connect us to Him. However, if we decide to turn our spirit toward the world, we become an enemy of God. And God's jealousy will be aroused. What does it mean when we talk about the jealousy of God? When the Bible talks about God's jealousy, it doesn't mean that He is capricious. It doesn't mean that His mood just sort of changes for no reason whatsoever. It means that God is dedicated to preserving His honor with our exclusive devotion and worship, God has made us His bride. And He wants our hearts to be devoted to Him alone. God does not want to share our devotions with any other any more than a husband or wife would want to share their spouse's devotion with someone else. If such a thing were to happen, any jealousy aroused would be righteous. It would be just. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 and 24, we read, Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So please listen. God has created a spirit within us that exists for the purpose of devoting ourselves to Him in a holy covenant. And if we dare to try to turn our spirit or our lives away from Him so that we can follow after some cheap, man-made, temporary substitute that cannot satisfy us, do we really think that we could do such a thing and escape consequences? No, I don't think so. But if we devote, our, if we devote ourselves to anything but God, we fail to understand the nature of God and we fail to understand our own human spirit. You see, if you exchange purity for impurity, there will be consequences. If you exchange diamonds for refuse, it will cost you. It will cost you more than you want to pay. Your spirit is not to do with as you please. You have the ability, mind you, but you don't have the right. Just like you have the ability to go commit a crime, but you don't have the right to do it. You see, 
You did not create your spirit. You do not own it. Your life belongs to God. God owns it. And He is a jealous God. And I would like to remind us that the only reason that we have not incurred the wrath of God already is because He is merciful. He allows us an opportunity to turn our spirits back to Him. God is a loving Father. God calls us to Himself. He gently draws us to Himself. He extends forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, today. And I would encourage you to receive His invitation. Some of you today are already followers of Christ. But maybe you've been away from the Lord. God calls you to come home. He is a loving Father who receives His prodigal children when they're ready to come home. And He celebrates when they do. There may be some here today who have not yet made a decision to follow Christ. Maybe you have this idea in your head that, you know, following Jesus is just not what modern, intelligent people do. I mean, it's 2018, right? Here's the problem with that way of thinking. You know that the Bible tells the truth about Jesus. He is the Son of God who came into this world to be our Lord and Savior. He did die on the cross to pay for all of our sins. And He rose from the grave. Literally. He rose from the grave to give us resurrection life. Life eternal. You know that the Bible is true. So you have a choice. You can walk away from God's invitation for you to receive Jesus. In fact, you can live the rest of your life trying to ignore God and His call upon you to receive His Son may grow more faint over time until you never hear Him again. But there's going to be a day when you cannot ignore Jesus any longer. It'll be the day that you stand before Him. On that day, you will have realized that you made a mistake that you cannot undo. You have exchanged God's mercy for His judgment. And that will be a terrible, terrible day. The other option is to receive the forgiveness and gift of eternal life that He offers you today. I would recommend that you take that option.